What I want to share with you is, let's turn over here to John chapter, I think it's chapter 20. No, it's John chapter 19. I've been speaking about the power of the cross all week long. And I just want to take one thing that happened here during the crucifixion of Jesus. I tell you what, let's just back up and read this account given in John. You know, you have to get all four of the Gospels together and put them together to get the full picture because each one of them emphasizes and records something a little different. But just let's read this about the crucifixion since this is what I've been ministering on all week long. And in John chapter 19 and in verse 16, Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, And they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. Then said, they said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to his disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, uh, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And of course the rest goes on to talk about how that they pierced him and they did this burial. And I want to focus on this verse 30, where it says that Jesus, after he had received the vinegar, said, It is finished. And you know, uh, I'm not sure what all that entails. I know that not everything that Jesus was sent to accomplish was totally through because it talks about over in Ephesians. Matter of fact, let's just read this because I've referred to it a couple of times already, but I want to read this in Ephesians chapter 4. And in verse 8 it says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heaven, 
that he might fill all things. And so this talks about how that after the death of Jesus, that he descended into the lower parts of the earth and led captivity captive. So he still had to accomplish that. You can also read over, matter of fact, this is in John chapter uh, 20, right after his resurrection, Mary Magdalene uh, found him and he revealed himself unto her. And when she finally recognized who it was, uh, she began to reach for him. And he said this in John chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus said unto her, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend to my father and your father and to my God and your God. So Jesus, after his death, had to descend into hell, into Sheol. He led captivity captive and took it uh, to heaven. And then it says that he still had to ascend to his father. And in the book of Hebrews, it said that he put his blood on the mercy seat. And it makes a major point of this in Hebrews chapter 8, that all of the things that were in the temple here on the earth were a pattern of the true temple in heaven. It, it quotes God telling Moses, says, see that you make it according to the pattern that was shown you in the mount. And it makes a point that in heaven there is a real temple. And there were the three compartments, the outer and the inner court and the holy of holies. And there was the veil that separated. And all of the pieces of furniture that were communicated in the Old Testament were uh, types or they were actually uh, symbolic of the real thing that is in heaven. So Jesus ascended into heaven and put his blood on the mercy seat. Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10 make a point of that. So Jesus wasn't totally finished with all of redemption yet because again, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Christ be not risen, then your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. So not all of the plan of God was finished yet. There were still things to be done. But Jesus said it is finished. And, and there could be multiple things, I guess, that this applies to. But the number one thing that this speaks to me is that the Old Testament law and the way that it imputed people's sins unto them and brought a curse on them for sin was finished. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. Matter of fact, let me turn over and read that because it's quoted in Galatians, but Deuteronomy says it even stronger than the quotation in Galatians. But in Deuteronomy chapter 21, and in verse 22, it says, If, if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be to put to death... And thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. And you know, this is quoted in a number of different places, and it says that it was an abomination to God for a person to be hung on a tree. You know, I don't understand all of the logic behind this, but I believe that one reason God placed such a curse on being hanged on a tree was because he knew that Jesus was going to come and be crucified, and it was a way of venting his wrath and putting his wrath and his judgment and his punishment upon Jesus. I personally don't understand the real 
logic of God hating a person hung on the tree other than he just was seeing that this would be the way that he would redeem himself and the world unto himself. And this was also one of the purposes of the law. One of the reasons that God gave the law, I believe there was multiple purposes, but one of them was to reveal to us our self-righteousness could never get us relationship with God. Nobody could ever keep the law. So it raised the bar so high that it made people despair of ever trying to earn salvation. That was one of the purposes of it. It's amazing how people miss that and instead they preach the law and don't uh, remember the whole thing that if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point you become guilty of all. But that was one of the purposes and another purpose was that it brought every judgment or every law of God had a corresponding judgment, curse, and punishment. And by God giving the law, He basically took all of that wrath and all of these punishments that were spoken against our sins, and through Jesus, He was able to put those things on the cross and judge sin. And I believe that that's the reason He cursed people that hung on the tree. That's the reason He put such... Uh, terrible judgments upon people who broke the laws because someday he was going to have his son do that. In the 12th chapter of John, let's turn over and look at this, John chapter 12. Jesus was prophesying about his death and resurrection and in the middle of all of this he said in verse 28, John 12, 28, Father glorify thy son. Then came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by heard it and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake unto him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth will draw all men unto me. You know, I've heard this quoted, and I've actually used this a long time ago to believe that if you just present Jesus properly, if you lift him up and glorify the Lord properly, he'll draw all men unto him. And that's the way that this is often quoted. And I remember thinking when I first started that, Father, I'm preaching your word the best I know how. I'm lifting you up, and yet people were staying away from my meeting by the droves. And I just couldn't understand how this verse uh, fit. But if you take this in context, look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. God was going to bring judgment on this world. Not by punishing us individually, but by having a lamb, a substitute, sacrifice. And He was going to bring His judgment upon them. And then in verse 32, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. In verse 30. Three, it says, this said he, signifying what death he should die. This wasn't talking about that if we just glorify the Lord and present him properly, that all men will respond to it. But I believe what this is talking about, that he's going to draw all judgment unto him. This word men is italicized. And in the King James Bible, you know, you can say what you want to about the King James, but at least these people had enough integrity that if something wasn't in the original text and they added it, uh, and you had to do this sometimes. Like, for instance, you know, when the people came to arrest Jesus, he said, whom do you seek? And it says, I am he. You know what? In English, you have to have an object like this. And so to be grammatically correct, 
you have to say, I am he. But the word he is italicized because it wasn't in the original language. What he actually said when they said, when he said, whom are you seeking? Uh, he said, I am. It was the great I am of Exodus chapter 4. Here was God in the flesh and he said, I am. And immediately 60 people fell backwards to the ground. Amen. Slain in the spirit. So, you know, I don't fault them for putting the word in there because it makes it grammatically correct. But it's, it's important to look and if it's italicized, that means that they added this. That word isn't there. And I believe that they, in an attempt to clarify what was going on, this actually says, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me, is what it literally says. What does the context say? It's all judgment. Jesus was like a lightning rod. And all of God's wrath, all of God's judgment for all eternity past and eternity future, every sin that we've ever committed, man, it came upon Jesus. And He literally took the wrath and the punishment of God for all of our sin into His own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. 1 Peter 2.24 And man, this is powerful. All of the wrath of God came upon him. So I believe here's what Jesus was saying when it was finished. God's wrath was poured out. And God's anger against our sin has been satisfied. And it's finished. Again, I made reference to this earlier, but when the angels appeared in Luke chapter 2, and said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. I believe that's Luke 2.14. He wasn't talking about peace among men, because that hasn't happened. Jesus even prophesied, I did not come to send peace among men. I came to set a man at variance against his father, and the father against the son, son against the father, etc., Jesus did not come to bring peace among men. He came to bring peace from God towards men. And when Jesus hung on the cross and all of the wrath of God, I mean all of it, not a large portion of it, and then we have just now a minor part, a manageable part that we can pay. No, God paid for all of our sin, all of our transgression. And I'm not going to take time this morning, but I've got to... Another teaching from Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10 that shows that it's all sin, past, present, and even sin that you haven't committed yet has already been judged. You have eternal redemption, not redemption until the next time you sin. You have eternal inheritance, not inheritance until the next time you sin. You have been sanctified. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. You've been sanctified through the one offering of Jesus once for all. And Hebrews 10, 14 says, If you've been sanctified, you've also been perfected forever. Not until the next time you sin. But you've been perfected forever. And put that with Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. And it says, We've come to the spirits of just men made perfect. Your physical body's not perfected, your soul isn't perfected, but your spirit has been sanctified and perfected forever. All sin has been paid for past, present, and even the sins that you haven't committed yet. Sin has been dealt with through Jesus. And when he said, it is finished, I believe that's what he's referring to. Look at this passage over in um, Daniel chapter 9. 
You know, again, I, I don't consider myself a theologian at all. I know a little Hebrew and a little Greek. One owns a restaurant and the other one runs a laundromat. <laughs> so I'm not totally sure, but man, this to me, I, I was studying this about a year ago, and it's after he sought about the 70 weeks and God gave Daniel clarification on all of that. And then he gave a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah and gave the exact time that it would happen. And here's some of the things that he said in Daniel chapter 9 in verse 24. This was Gabriel speaking to Daniel and giving him this instruction. And in verse 24 it says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city and to finish the transgression, and to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Of course, this is talking about the coming of the Messiah, and it literally talks about making an end of sins, and finish the transgression. I believe that all sin, not only sin up until the time that Jesus died was paid for, but somehow God took the sin of the entire human race from past, times past, to times in the future, and not only up until the time you got born again, but God is able to take the sins that you haven't even committed yet, and all sin was placed upon Jesus and God drew, Jesus drew all judgment unto himself. All of the wrath of God came upon Jesus. And I believe that that's what he's referring to, that God's wrath against man's sins were paid for. Over here in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2. In verse 13 it says, And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. You know, this handwriting of ordinances is talking about the Old Testament law, which the Scripture says was against us. Again, this is one of the greatest deceptions I believe that the devil ever put forth on the body of Christ. He has basically got the body of Christ to embrace the Old Testament law and all of the rules and commandments as being a good thing. A positive thing that as we obey this, it's going to make God love us more and make us more accepted. And I could give you right now a dozen scriptures right off the top of my head about how that the law strengthened sin. How that the law was a ministration of death, a ministration of condemnation. It gave the knowledge of sin, but it never could justify you. It never set you free. The law wasn't something that was given to help us and make us closer to God. It was given to beat us down to produce death. Condemnation comes by the law. There was a purpose for this because prior to Jesus coming, people were tending to compare themselves among themselves and thinking, I'm okay. 
I'm not as bad as Charlie down here. I don't do what he does. And so you know what? I Sure, God's going to accept me. And they forgot that if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. And so God gave all of these commands to take this self-righteousness out of us. And there was a purpose in Him condemning us and making us feel guilty so that we would quit trusting in ourselves, so that we would recognize how hopeless our state was and we would just throw ourselves on the mercy of God. And the Bible says this over in First uh, Timothy chapter 1, that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this. In other words, here's how you've got to use the law. Matter of fact, let me just read that. First Timothy, I think it's First Timothy chapter 1. He talked about that some have, uh, in verse 6, have uh, swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. That's... Just talking about they're just making noise. They're just saying stuff. It's meaningless. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. People who preach that you've got to be holy and you've got to keep the law don't have a clue what they're saying. By saying that, they're condemning themselves because nobody ever keeps the law. Nobody ever keeps it. And if you were to challenge some of the people who preach that so strong and say, so are you perfect? Everyone of them would say, well, no, I'm not perfect, but... And then they would basically say that, you know, you do the best you can. And if you do more good than you do bad, then God accepts you. That's not what the Word of God teaches. People who are preaching the law and saying, unless you do this, God won't bless you. He won't love you. He won't honor you. He won't use you. They do not understand what they're saying, nor whereof they affirm. You cannot live by the law. The law wasn't given so that you could keep it, but rather to show you how incapable of keeping it you were, so you'd throw yourself on God for mercy. So they don't know what they're saying or whereof they affirm. Verse 8, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. Who's a righteous man? Amen. Any of us that have been born again, we are righteous. We have been made the righteousness of God in Him. The law isn't made for a person who has accepted Jesus. The law is made for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. The law is made to show people their sin, to shut them up, to drive them to their knees so that they'll call out to God for help and quit trusting in their own goodness. But the moment you come to Jesus, Jesus took that law and nailed it to his cross. He took the curse of the law. He became a curse for us. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Let me just read this verse. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That curse of the law. The law was literally nailed to the cross. Jesus took the law into himself. Took all of the just demands and the punishment of our sins unto himself. And he suffered our punishment on the tree. You know, all of us are aware of double jeopardy. You can't try a person twice for the same crime. There's actually been some movies made about this. I don't know if it was based on 
reality or not, but somebody was tried for killing their mate and it turned out that when they got out of prison and had served their time, their mate never did die. They just went someplace and so this person had already been tried for it. So they went and killed them and got by with murder because they had already been punished and you couldn't be punished twice for the same crime. You can't be punished twice for the same time if crime. If you've already paid your debt, it's paid. And Jesus paid our debt and we cannot be punished for something that Jesus has already been punished for. Jesus was already separated from the Father, so there's no reason for us to be separated from the Father. If we have any condemnation, then we are bearing something that Jesus has already borne. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsook him because he became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He didn't just take a tiny bit of sin, make a symbolic payment for our sin. He took all sin past, all sin future of the whole human race, all of your sin. He took it in his own body on the tree. It was nailed to the cross and now it has been judged and the law for the purpose of righteousness for the purpose of relating to God is now ended. It has fulfilled that purpose and it was all satisfied through Jesus and we should not be living under this law mentality that we've got to do all of these things to make ourselves worthy. I couldn't tell you how many people I've talked to and they say, oh yes, I believe that it's God's will for me to be well, it's God's will for me to prosper, it's God's will for these things, but I just don't deserve it. That's a law mentality. We don't deserve it. But Jesus was punished and bore all of our sin. So all of our sin was placed upon Him. It was nailed to the tree. And all of His righteousness was given to me. Did you know what? He didn't deserve my sin. Jesus was holy. And it was not right for Him to bear my sin, but He did it. And likewise, I don't deserve His righteousness and His holiness. But I've got it. Just as surely as He took my sin, I have now got His righteousness. And I'm as holy and righteous and pure in my spirit as Jesus is. And for me to go around with a sin consciousness and enter into the presence of the Lord saying, Oh God, I'm just so unworthy to come before you today. That's the way we've been taught that that is a godly attitude. But it's not. It's not honoring Jesus. It's not honoring the cross. It's not realizing that it's finished. It's over. There has been made an end to sin, Daniel 9.24, and an end to transgressions. They're paid for. The issue isn't people's individual sins, which again, the whole church is primarily, the whole focus of, of Christians is on sin. And how do I overcome this sin? Because sin is all of my problem. Well, I'm not saying that we just go live in sin because sin still opens up a door to the devil and gives Satan an inroad into your life. So there is benefit to living a holy life and rejecting sin. But you would wind up living holier accidentally than you ever have on purpose before if we quit focusing on sin and instead focused on that we have been made the righteousness of God. And if we were focused on what He's done for us, it would cause so much love and gratitude in our heart that we would live wholly as a byproduct and not a way to relationship with God. Look in Romans chapter 10 at this passage of Scripture. In Romans chapter 10, 
And in verse 4 it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Christ is the end of the law. It's finished. The law for the purpose of righteousness is finished. It's over. Our mentality, our bondage. Paul said this in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. You know, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That's talking about the Old Testament law. And yet it's sad. It's sad to me how Christians are so bound by a performance mentality and judging themselves and judging others based on their performance. You know, there's still benefit. When I see a person just go live in sin, I sit there and I'll tell them, man, this is stupid. Don't do this. You're opening up a door to the devil. Why would you do this? But I would never tell them that God's angry at you and God's not going to love you and God won't bless you and you're, God's going to take the ministry away and God's going to make you fail and God's going to put sickness on you to break you and humble you and all of the things that are presented in the name of the Lord. That is not true. God has paid for our sins. God loves us. You could take the, some of these people that have been very visible that have had worldwide ministries and then they commit sin and they fall. And you know what? People can say, oh boy, God judged them. Nope, God judged Jesus. I don't believe it's God that caused their ministries to fail. But you know what? There is consequences for our sin. And you go out and start living in sin. You let the devil in and... They have suffered. I'm thinking of one right now. I won't mention his name. But the guy had over $8 million a month coming in back 25, 30 years ago. The largest ministry in the history of the world. Impacting the world on more television than any other person has ever been. I guess maybe since. I'm not sure. Making a powerful impact. And lost it all because of living in sin. And today the guy struggles. And I mean just... But you know what? God still loves him. I don't believe God's mad at him. I don't believe the Bible says the gifts in the Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. The guy is still preaching and God uses him to the degree that he can, but he has his influence is like one thousandth of what it used to be. And I'm I'm not saying that it's God that knocked him down and took his ministry away from him. He lost it because he was stupid and he He gave place to the devil and Satan is one that comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. But God loves him. He's still anointed. You know what? If I was to go out and live in sin and if I lost all of the momentum and all of the good things that God's doing in in my life, you know what? I believe God would still love me. God would still see me righteous in the Spirit. He'd still love me. But you would lose your confidence in me and rightly so. And you would quit supporting it because you don't want to promote and foster things. And I believe that even God would quit promoting me because He wouldn't want to take a person that's got all of these problems in their life and put them in a position of leadership so that they could reproduce these problems in other people. I'm not sure that God would promote me the same way that He's promoting me in my ministry right now. But you know what? He'd love me just exactly the same and He'd still use me to the degree that He could. God wouldn't reject me. My sins have been paid for. But it's just stupid. Why would anybody go throw away all of the things that God has done? But the law has been satisfied. Christ is the end of the law 
for righteousness. Look up in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Boy, this is just, this is descriptive of the church today. I'm sure that there are some people who are absolute crooks and charlatans. But you know, I believe that most of the body of Christ that is preaching the legalism and putting people under condemnation and doing all of these things, they they have a zeal for God, but they just don't know the truth. I know that at one time when I first got turned on to the Lord, and I mean, I had this experience where God showed me His love. And I mean, I should have been preaching grace from the very beginning. But I wasn't, because you know what? I wasn't raised under that model. That's not what was presented to me. And I remember that it's after having this great experience where God just showed me His grace and love, and I was called up into the presence of God. I started printing tracts. I remember one of the tracts I printed was, Repent or else, turn or burn. We had another one, What You Must Do to Go to Hell. And we would go to the bars in Fort Worth, and we would pass those out. And it says, what you must do to go to hell. And you open it up and it was totally blank. There wasn't a thing in it. And you flip over on the back and it says, that's right, nothing. Because you're already going to hell. All I've seen and come short of the glory of God. Steve and I used to go and... You remember Steve doing that? Do you remember that track, Martha? Steve was my best friend. This is his sister. and I tell you what. I had had the grace of God change my life and yet I was there condemning people. And God used it to a degree. We saw some people born again. I had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. This is saying in a sense that God's righteousness, righteousness by faith in what Jesus did on the cross putting faith in His atonement and putting faith in your goodness are opposite directions. And if you are seeking your own atonement, you're seeking your own goodness, if you're standing before God in your own righteousness, you cannot be in His righteousness. You can't have both. It is not His righteousness providing a basis and then your righteousness makes up the deficit. There is no deficit with what Jesus did. Jesus paid it all and there's nothing that you can add to it. And you either are out trying to base your relationship with God on your own goodness or you're basing your relationship with God on His goodness, but it is not a combination of the two. And as Pastor Bob shared, you know, in the very first session, if you are living under condemnation, knowing that God has something available, but you just don't feel worthy, and how could God ever use me? How could this ever come to pass? That's because, that's a symptom of the fact that you are operating in self-righteousness, your own goodness, you're outside of grace, and you're into a performance-based religion. And I tell you, Jesus put an end to that. It's finished. It's finished. The law for the purpose of righteousness is over. The wrath of God against your sin is over. It's paid for. God's not mad at you, and He's never going to get mad at you. Now, for those who haven't accepted Jesus, there's still the law. There's still wrath. It's like, you know, I liken it to gravity. Gravity is a universal law, and it flows all of the time. 
And it keeps us earthbound. You aren't strapped into your chair. The chairs aren't bolted to the ground because gravity just holds you there. We use it. And you know, when a person flies, they haven't stopped gravity. Gravity still exists. You're just applying the force of aerodynamics, thrust and lift, and because of it, you're able to fly and you're able to go out even into outer space. But did you know gravity still exists? If you turn off the power, you're going to come down. Gravity still is there. If you step outside of that airplane, you will fall. And likewise, Christ has set me free from the curse of the law. But not because the curse has now been eradicated, that the law no longer exists. The law still exists, and for those who are not in Christ Jesus, they are earthbound. They aren't able to fly. They aren't able to escape these things. But in Christ, we no longer have any condemnation. For those outside of Christ, man, they are nothing but condemned. Look at this scripture over in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, of course, John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He didn't send His Son to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. In verse 36 it says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Not is going to have, but He already has it. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The law is the wrath of God. It says in Romans chapter 4 that the law works wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Romans chapter 5. The law still exists for those who are outside of God. And the purpose of the law for a non-believer is to show them their need for God and to show them the impending judgment so that they will quit trusting in themselves. They will recognize that our sins are a tremendous transgression against God. It will drive a person to their knees to call out to God for salvation. But the moment you come to the Lord and get born again, then it is finished. The law is over. All of your sins were placed upon Jesus. He deals with you not based on your performance, but based on what Jesus' performance was. And man, there is a huge difference between these two. And somehow or another, the body of Christ as a whole hasn't understood this. And they just keep imputing sin to people once they come to Jesus, not recognizing that it's finished, that the law is over, that it's done its purpose. It, it showed us our need for God. It drove us to a Savior. This exact terminology is used. I'm just paraphrasing in Galatians chapter 3. But it says the law was our schoolmaster to show us our need for Christ. And it drove us to that place of making Jesus our Lord. But once faith in Christ has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. We are not supposed to be law conscious, be sitting here constantly evaluating how well we've performed and feeling either confidence and security or condemnation based on whether or not we've done well. We need to get out of that mindset. We need to get over it. It's the end of the law for righteousness. It was nailed to the cross. It's over. It's finished. And it is not for the believer. Amen? Man, that is awesome. If we could live by that, I guarantee you, it would transform our lives. The only thing that Satan has ever had against us is our sin. 
He can't make you doubt that God has the ability. That's not the problem. There's not a problem. There's probably not a person in this room who doesn't believe that God can do whatever God wants to do. That He is God. That He can do it. And most of you in here believe in a full gospel. That God heals and saves, delivers, sets free, prospers and does all this. You believe in these things. And yet there's people right in this room that don't experience healing. That don't experience prosperity. That are still living under guilt. Under condemnation. Depression. You know that God has the ability, the power to set you free, and yet you aren't experiencing it. Why? We already studied that. Christ has become of none effect because we are trying to earn our, our uh, benefit, our salvation, our healing, our deliverance, and it's all based on performance. And Satan's the accuser of the brethren. He's not the accuser of God. He's not going to come and tell you God can't do it, God won't do it. No, what he does is say, sure. God has the power, but He'll never do it for you, you sorry and godly thing. And He'll show you, He'll accuse you. And if you understood what I'm trying to say today, that it's finished, it's nailed to the cross, that all judgment came upon Jesus for your sins, past, present, and even future sins. And if you fully understood that it is finished, His accusations against you would be meaningless. Because it's already been judged. You wouldn't have to pay for it again. There is no double jeopardy. Jesus paid for your sins. I'm free. Even though I don't deserve anything, I can get it by just putting faith in what Jesus did for me and not standing here and trying to defend myself. But I tell you, many, many, most Christians are not experiencing the new covenant reality of what Jesus did for us on the cross. They don't understand it's finished and they're trying to finish it up. They're trying to complete the work of Christ. And man, you can't add to it. It's finished. It's complete. It's done. We're saved. We're free. We're loved. We're righteous. And there's nothing you can do about it. Amen. You can't change who you are in Christ. Now you can walk ignorant of it and not receive the benefits, but we can't change what God has already done. Once we get born again, you are as Jesus is. Right now, as He is now, you are that way right now in your spirit. You are free. You are loved. God loves you as much as He loves Jesus. He's as pleased with you as He's pleased with Jesus. Because it's Jesus on the inside of you, your born-again self that He relates to. And He's pleased with that. And none of that ever changes. The only thing that changes is our perception of it and whether or not we enjoy the benefits. But it's all done. It's finished. And if we could really renew our minds to that, just imagine what it would be like to live without any consciousness of sin. Not a single thought of sin. Not a single thought of, you know, am I worthy? Have I fasted enough? God, have I done enough? Am I holy enough? Can you use me now? Amen. Some of us can only imagine that. But you know what? You can't go anywhere in your physical body that you hadn't already been in your mind. If you haven't experienced that freedom, you need to sit down and take these scriptures and start imagining it. And just imagining what it would be like to walk free. 
Go there in your mind first, and then eventually, as you think in your heart, that's the way it'll be, and you'll be able to go there, and you'll be able to walk in a freedom and liberty. It says in Psalms chapter 35, verse 27, it says, Let God be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of His servant. God is pleased to prosper us. And this isn't only talking about in finances, it includes that, but it's talking about emotionally, with joy, with peace, with anointing, with victory, with power, with influence, with healing, with everything. God is pleased to give those things to us. But we have to let Him be magnified. God will not force any of this on you. He doesn't force you to live in victory. You can live an entire life condemned and defeated. You can go through life. And you know what? God is just dancing over you with joy is what it says in the Word. He's just dancing and and twirling over us as Charlie was pointing out, I think it was. And He's rejoicing and He loves you and you have been set free and there's an end to His sin. He's not mad at you anymore. All of the judgment was placed upon God and God is just rejoicing over you. And you can be so depressed you're contemplating suicide. And yet God is dancing over you with joy. Amen? It would be to our advantage to get into agreement with God. And just enjoy it. You don't have to wait until heaven. You can enjoy it now because one third of your salvation is complete. You are as free in your spirit as you will ever be in eternity. Your spirit's not going to be improved, changed, dusted off, injected with any power. It's already as He is. That's exactly the way you are in the spirit. And the rest of the Christian life is renewing your mind so that you can act it out in your body. But one third of you is perfect and pure. Isn't that awesome? That's what Jesus accomplished for us through the cross. It's finished. It's done. Thank you, Jesus. Let's just stand and praise God for it being done. Amen. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for Him bearing our sin. Not only the sin of the past, but the sin of the present, the sin of the future. Thank you for taking everything we have or ever will do and placing that sin into the physical body of your Son. Thank you for making Him a lightning rod, for hanging Him on a tree and letting your curse come upon Jesus so that I would never be cursed. Thank you, Father, for putting all of your wrath against Jesus. And thank you that now the law is nailed to the cross. It's over that you aren't judging me on my performance. You're judging me on my position in Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, we just praise you and thank you so much for that. We receive it in the mighty name of Jesus.